Amen. Good morning. Uh, welcome. Uh, my name is Brian. Uh, if it's your first time visiting, uh, I'm the lead pastor here at Valley Town. But I'm also a high school math teacher right now, so I'm definitely going to get a little mathy on you today. I, I apologize in advance, but I, I swear it's exciting. It's exciting. All right. It's not a lie. I tell this to my students every day. So, uh, so our, uh, my buddy Ben, the pastor who started this church, is actually down in Georgia for the next couple of weeks. He's preaching at Greystone Church, uh, which is the church that actually sent Ben and Zach and their families out to start this one just a little over two years ago. Uh, and he's preaching down there, and he's, part of his objective is he's actually going to be raising support so that him and Zach uh, can go start a brand new church in Keene, New Hampshire in the next year. So really cool stuff going on with that. Uh, so today we're continuing our series in Colossians, uh, which is a letter written by Paul to the church. If, if you're actually interested in getting a Bible, we have them for free. It's our gift to you. Just raise your hand or make eye contact with someone holding Bibles and hopefully they'll get you one. Um, and yeah, so we're in the book of Colossians, but... Uh, We've periodically uh, been going through uh, the book of Acts, and that's about the early church, and we've seen this character, the Apostle Paul, and he writes a letter to one of these churches, and that's what we're going through today. But first, I want to tell you guys about my best friend. So my best friend is uh, this guy, Ryan Patrick Jones. Uh, We grew up together. We, We met in like the second grade uh, we'd hang out, we'd ride bikes uptown and play Frisbee. Uh, when we were older, we'd go out for coffee at a restaurant and like we'd hang out. Uh, we'd play video games together and like go camping and all sorts of stuff, right? So like he's my best friend, my buddy, right? And uh, we ended up going to different high schools, but we stayed connected. We, you know, went to different colleges, but stayed connected. And we're still best friends. But when he was in college, uh, in order to pay for his college, he joined the army, and he eventually became a first lieutenant in the Army Corps of Engineers, and he was in charge of a unit of guys that would uh, go out ahead of the convoys in Iraq and clear the road of improvised explosive devices. So they would be going around just to make sure that the convoys could safely pass, uh, and that was their intent. They would defuse these bombs. And uh, before each mission, he would actually lead some of his men in Bible study. And this kid, we, uh, he's actually the first guy I would read the Bible with because our first job was washing dishes and we'd work together. And we'd just be like shooting scripture back and forth about like what we were reading about Jesus back in the day. And it was just so exciting to be able to reflect that back and forth. But uh, my friend Ryan, he, he and uh, his driver ended up getting killed in Iraq seven years ago. Uh, because of one of those IEDs. And it took out his Humvee, and it seriously wounded his gunner as well. And so Ryan is more than just my best friend. He's more than just my buddy. He's a hero. He's, he's a guy, a man that deserves respect. He's a man that has authority, right, over his unit, over his men. So he went beyond just being my, my buddy and my friend. And the parallel that I want to draw is that here at Valleytown, we've spent a lot of time kind of overcoming this mentality that God's just some mean jerk in heaven who writes rules because Jesus calls us his friend. He said that to his disciples. We're more than just like servants of God. We are friends of God. So we've built like this concept over time, over and over, that Jesus wants a personal relationship with each of us, that he died on the cross for 
you, and, and He would have done it if you were the only one that would have ever received that salvation and that gift. So today, we're going to go beyond that, though, because Jesus is more than just our best friend. He's more than just our buddy. He's more than just like, you know, looking at him like some vending machine where I can hit A17 with my prayers and like get what I'm looking for. It's not just about that, right? It's, he's, he's beyond that. And this passage in Colossians talks about some of the titles and the roles that Jesus has where he is supreme, all right? He happens to be someone who deserves respect, someone who's in a position of authority. And that's what we're going to find out about Jesus today when we read Colossians. So we're in Colossians chapter 1, uh, verses 15 through 23. <coughs> and uh, it starts off, he, all right, referring to Jesus. You can read verse 14 or prior if you want to verify that. I'm not switching it up on you. Uh, so it says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created, or let's see, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you and I, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled to his body, right, of his flesh, by his death, in order that he might present you holy and blameless, above reproach, before him. If indeed you continue in your faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed to all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So, there are a lot of things that just said about Jesus. Really big things. And that's probably hard for some of us to, to receive. We're thinking like, I think he was just like some carpenter. Maybe he was all right at making a chair, right? Like, some people are at that point, and that's, that's actually, that's great. That's fine. Some people might think like, he was a good teacher, right? He had some good ideas. Some people think he's a prophet, but the Bible is clear that Jesus was way more than all of those things, all right? And, and I want to let you know that wherever you are on the spectrum of who Jesus is, you might even think he was like the most terrible person ever to have existed because he deceived the world or whatever is what you might believe. And that's, that's fine, but I ask that you would continue to seek, continue to ask questions because you will find out that he is so much more than that. He is the truth. He is the way. So, we're going to look at some of these titles that Jesus was given in this passage and, and talk about this. Like, what does this even mean? Right? Because I thought Jesus was just my, like, my homeboy that I get to hang out with. I thought that's, that's all it was. But he's way more than that. So the first title I see is that he is the image of the invisible God. All right? God chose to represent himself through Jesus on this earth. All right, so when you think about God or, or how he feels about mankind or how he thinks about you, think about 
how Jesus treated those people he met. Think about how he was moved with compassion towards those he would encounter. In, in John 14, Jesus says it this way. He's, he says, uh, right, one of his disciples, Philip, comes up to him and says, Lord, show us the Father and, and that'll be enough for us. Like, just show us God. Like, come on, just once. Like, we know you can, sort of thing, right? And, and Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or, or else at least believe on the account of the works themselves. So Jesus and God are the same, right? God established his covenant. He, he established his, his perception towards all of humanity and how Jesus represented himself. Everything that Jesus did was what God the Father wanted him to do in that moment, right? So, so don't think about God as some jerk, right? God is the most loving, the one that gave his life on the cross that we could be with him forever, so Jesus is the perfect representation of, of God. That's why in, in Colossians today, in verse 19, we saw that it said the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. God was fully represented in Jesus. So what I want you to think about is, is just that, that God loves you so much, all right? But Jesus is more than just our buddy, the next title it gave him was that he is the firstborn of all creation. Now, this one's actually a little bit difficult for us to wrap our minds around because we think, okay, firstborn, I guess that means like God made Jesus and then like Jesus made everything else, like is, is what we'd probably think. But biblically, the word firstborn is a title. It's actually a, a responsibility. It's a position of authority. And, and to build that case, uh, not only do subsequent verses kind of verify that Jesus wasn't just made, right? Uh, all things were made through him. Uh, but in the Old Testament, we actually see that uh, there are, were individuals, right? Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, who were not born first among their brothers, but were honored with the firstborn position in terms of inheritance and in blessing and responsibility. So the firstborn is a title where he is, right, in charge of all creation, in uh, John chapter 1, just to kind of like build this case, because I know that sounds like a little weird, and you're like, I don't know, I think you're tricking me here. Uh, John chapter 1, he, he puts it this way, and he refers to Jesus as the Word. I'm not going to get to that point, but read on if you want to check it out to verify. Uh, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was the life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So Jesus and God are the same, all right? They, Jesus was the creator. He was the one that was involved in all of it. And, and even just the idea that it refers to Jesus as the Word, all right, capital W, Word in your Bibles is what it says, because if you think even back to the book of Genesis, how did God create things? He spoke it, right? So Jesus is the word, the representation of God, kind of in our dimensions, I guess, uh, 
And that's how God also represented himself when Jesus was born on this earth. So verse 2, it says, By him all things were created. And this is where I'm really going to take some time. Because I know like the idea of creation, that almost sounds foolish in our modern era. I understand like you might not feel comfortable with like the Genesis account of what creation was. And that's actually okay. Because I know that once you meet Jesus and learn to trust him, eventually you will trust his eyewitness account of what happened when he was there when he created it. Because after all, he was the only one that was there. I wasn't there. Uh, so eventually you can build that trust. But I want to let you know right now, if you don't believe in creation, that's actually okay. You can have experienced salvation. In order to be saved, you just have to confess Jesus as your Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead. That's what it says in Romans chapter 10. So, so believing in creation versus evolution or whatever isn't an issue of salvation. It's just an issue of like, do you believe what Jesus said? So don't feel right, condemned in any capacity wherever you come from because chances are we probably all came from some sort of background of not believing in creation. Uh, you probably meet Jesus in some other capacity and like I said, you learn to trust what he says. But I'm going to go a little bit beyond that today. So, the reasons that we believe in creation here at Valleytown is, is a good number of them, but I'm going to hit a few. First of all, we believe in creation because of what Jesus said, all right? Because Jesus himself believed in and taught creation as if it was literal from the Old Testament. In Mark chapter 10, verse 6, he says, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. That was quoting from uh, Genesis 1, and he, he also quotes Genesis 2 right after that. In Mark chapter 13, he says, for in those days, he's referring to future tense, even past us, not just future from what his perspective was at that time. He says, in those days, there will be such uh, tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. So he's talking about creation happened. In fact, Jesus quotes a lot from the book of Genesis. And he quotes from it as, as though it's like worth basing your life decisions on, right? This is where he gets his concept for marriage. And he, he says like, all right, this is how marriage works. This is what it was like then. This is what we should do now, right? So he, he teaches it as though it literally happened and wasn't just some metaphor. So that's the first reason why we believe in creation is because Jesus, what Jesus says. Another reason we believe in it is because of what Satan says. And this is a little bit coin flipped on you. But think about what Satan did say in the garden to Eve. He asked one question. He said, did God really say that? Did God really say that? Right? Did God say you couldn't eat of any tree in the garden? Or what, what did he say? What did he really say? And that, that was the original temptation. And that's the question that so many of us encounter when we experience doubts is like, I know the Bible says this, but did God really say that? Like, is this really his opinion on sin? Is this really God's, right, design and how he did creation? Right, did God really say this? And that's, that's the temptation that we face. So I know that's not enough reason to just believe something because that would seem like potentially propaganda just trying to shield you from doubting the truth. But to some degree, that's still something to consider is that that is the temptation of the enemy from the very beginning. So, another reason we believe in creation is because of 
what creation itself speaks. There's evidence within creation itself that testifies of a designer, of a creator. And uh, Paul puts it this way in, in Romans chapter 1. He says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So the things that have been made should bear evidence of a creator, is essentially what this is saying. Uh, And then Paul says, so they are without excuse, referring to people that don't believe what God said. So a creator is evidence within his creation. There there should be evidence of design. There should be something behind that. And uh, let me show you some pictures, a little sidetrack a bit, of uh, a hike that I went on back in 2009, the day before Thanksgiving. This is on the Mid-State Trail in northern Massachusetts. And uh, just, just check out this picture for a second while I sip some water here. So this is a, a little nature scene. It's got a rock. And I think you guys would probably agree that this rock is here due to natural causes. It looks the way it does because of erosion or heat or like wind, right? It probably is just naturally there. And I would agree with you, right? Most of those forces, natural forces, probably have that rock looking the way it does right now, right? Maybe you even believe in like ice ages and glaciers moved that there, whatever. But you think that there's probably some natural explanation to that, and I agree. So look at this next picture. I found some more rocks when I was on that hike. And I was looking at these rocks, and I'm thinking, I don't think nature put it that way. Right? I'm in the middle of the woods. I don't see any footprints around this. I mean, should I believe that nature just happened to have those rocks arranged that way? I, I, mean, I mean, at some point, I mean, like, if I find a pile of, like, three rocks, yeah, that could naturally happen, right? Or, like, five rocks in a row, maybe. Yeah, that probably happens. Probability would suggest that that's likely. Uh, this, this picture happens to have 32 rocks in it. And I think, like, we're starting to get a little bit improbable that this wasn't designed, that there wasn't some intention behind this, that there wasn't some design or some purpose, right? There's, there's some intelligence to how this is arranged, right? There's like two to four rocks high, and, and it's all in a row. It's not like they're scattered about, right? There's, there's order, right? So I, I think like to some degree, like ask yourself the question, how many rocks would it take to be in a row for you to believe that it was designed? And that's the same sort of question that you know, archaeologists use, they believe that they can determine there was design in what they're seeing in history. Or a, a, a forensics expert, right? They believe that they can determine that the death of an individual was intentional caused by an intelligence and not just an accident, right? Through experimenting and ex- analyzing the evidence, right? That you can perceive design based off of what you observe. So this next picture, I definitely think naturally occurred there's actually no doubt in my mind um, that I think, I mean, if you think about it, guys, it, I mean, if there's enough time, matter could assemble, or, or maybe if the atmospheric conditions were right on, on, like, planet Earth a long time ago, or maybe if there was, like, lightning. Imagine lightning, like, and, and like, the sand maybe melted and assembled glass and formed this image. Like, I, I mean, I didn't see any footprints, guys. I'm pretty sure this just naturally occurred as is. And, I mean, you guys probably realize by now, like, of course this is designed. 
right? This is a complicated machine. There's intention behind it. There's purpose behind all the mechanisms. There's a symbiotic relationship between all of the components that this thing doesn't work unless they're assembled in a particular order. order. But what's crazy about this picture, guys, is that truck isn't actually all that complicated. The most complicated thing in this image is any given cell in any of those organisms that you see in that picture. A cell in one of those trees is far more complicated than that truck and requires far more intelligence and design in order to be assembled and to work. So, so I just want you guys to think about that. Like, You should be able to see design when something it reaches a certain degree of, of complexity Right or reaches a certain degree of, of intention behind it, right? you should be able to come to that conclusion. So I don't want to just be like, believe in creation because the Bible tells me so sort of thing. Um, I mean, I can make a basis for why the Bible is true and why it's different than every other book, but we don't have time for that today. So I'm going to actually get into some of the science because the Apostle Paul, later on in the book of Colossians, he's actually encountering a lot of like, wrong thinking and wrong worldly philosophy that has kind of plagued the church, and he takes the time to correct it, all right? And I recognize, like, I, I mean, I love teaching the Bible, and I'm going to take a little bit of a sidestep to talk about some math and science because I realize this is a stumbling block for a lot of people. This is a doubt that a lot of us experience, like, I don't know if I can believe in Jesus because, like, this is pretty crazy. Like, you think six days is all it took? So I sympathize with that. So I'm going to come at it from the angle that we believe. We tend to believe scientists and mathematicians and physicists. So let's find out what some of them say. So let's consider uh, Sir Isaac Newton, all right, dude that uh, had discovered calculus. So high five there. Although he actually, he simultaneously independently discovered along with this other guy, Leibniz, but... Uh, I'll step away from the math history there for a second. Um, he also, right, is the guy behind a lot of physics and our understanding of, uh, understanding of Newtonian physics and his three laws, right? <clears throat> and this is what he said. He said, gravity explains the motion of the planets, but it does not explain or cannot explain who sets the planets in motion, right? So when he saw the solar system, he saw order and design. And as science has progressed, we see even more order and design within the cosmos, okay? In fact, like, there, there's just so many things, I don't have time to hit them, but conservation of angular momentum, the fact that if there's a big bang or explosion, everything that's spinning should maintain spinning in the same direction. Everything should have that, and yet we find that some planets, even in our own solar system, and some entire galaxies are spinning backwards compared to everyone else. It breaks the law of the conservation of angular momentum, or, or the fact that there's fine-tuning within the universe. There's different, uh, basically, elements that we see within nature. You know, we expect certain constants regarding gravity, the speed of light, and different things like that, and they found that there's over 140 of them that if they were off by the slightest amount, life couldn't exist. The universe couldn't exist. Some of them, it's only off by, like, if you, t if you had, like, the knobs of the universe and you could, like, twiddle with them and, like, change gravity, you know, or, like, whatever. If some of them, like, if you turned one of those knobs, like, a percent, you'd still be okay. And, like, for some of those factors, it's like that. But other factors, if you change it a, a thousandth of a percent, you just broke the universe. Like, don't do that, right? Like, don't, don't touch those knobs, right? So it appears as though our universe is finely tuned 
And that begs the question, who did it? Who did it? Why is it like this, right? So, but better evidence than what is out there, I find, is what's in here in, in life, in cells. Uh, because in Darwin's day, right, Charles Darwin, right, Nat, you know, naturalist theory of evolution, uh, they, he, he saw the cell and he and other scientists of, of his day thought it was just like a, a bag of jello kind of thing. Like it was just like cytoplasm, like it's a little, it's a little bag of goop. They thought it was that simple. Um, and, and obviously it's, it's more than that. We've discovered that through science and, and the advances in technology. And so, so cellular complexity, it, it, it's ridiculous. Uh, cells, actually, I don't know if you guys realize this. I've got so much like bonus content I put on the back of your handouts. Like seriously, hyperlinks just all over it. Go check this out because I, I actually don't believe I'm going to convince necessarily anyone today. You really need to like dig into this stuff on your own. And I'm not talking like conspiracy theorist websites. I'm, like, you know, a lot of this is from, you know, different resources that are secular scientist organizations. Um, but the cell is compared to a factory. And this is why I want you to check out uh, this guy, Drew Barry. He did a TED Talk a while ago. He's actually an animator and a biologist, and he animates the components within the cells and analyzes these molecular machines. But the cell is, is compared to a factory by a lot of people because they, they see that it, it has its own like database, it has its own way of manufacturing, and it doesn't have any employees. It's all like robotics, literally. These protein machines are all robots. Some of them can walk. Some of them have like different assembly components and like can all do this and, and, and do it very rapidly as well. Um, but think about the fact that like the cell is like this factory. It's super complex. It's actually more complicated than any factory that mankind has ever built. Uh, we've built some factories, like I think there, Ford had a factory a while back where what would go in is raw materials and what would come out is cars, right? They could, they could produce everything on site out of raw materials, and our cells can do that. It just takes raw materials and then builds everything it needs, and, and it, can, it, it can do that. But what's even crazier is this. Imagine if, like, you're walking down the street and you see this giant factory acres wide, and then suddenly it's able to duplicate itself, Without anyone pushing a button, it's suddenly able to build all of the parts necessary to build a duplicate factory right next to it. And imagine that it could do this in eight hours, right? Now, that's how quick some of our cells are at replicating, all right? Some of our cells are that fast at being able to duplicate themselves. And, and even if we had all of the resources and all of the intelligence, and if we had, like, an army of NASCAR crew pitmen that could, like, assemble things super quick, we couldn't build a factory that fast. We can't do it. But yet our cells can, and they do it all the time. And, in fact, we've got, like, six to eight hours for our cells to, to reproduce and to split. Our liver cells take as much as a year. But some bacteria can duplicate in 20 minutes. 20 minutes, it can just completely duplicate. And there's trillions of atoms all in this organized design. It's crazy. So I just want to build that case for the complexity of the cell for a little bit. And uh, there's this mathematician, an American mathematician. His name is William Dembski. Uh, he was kind of analyzing probability. And he came up with this idea called, let's see if I get it right, the universal probability bound. And it's this idea that he took the number of atoms in the universe, which is uh, 10 to the 80th power, the number of elementary particles, all right? So that's one with 80 zeros after it. If you think that's a big number, I apologize, honey. My wife has got a fear of infinity, a pyrophobia. 
We're going to hit some big numbers today. Okay, yeah, just tune out. Just, yeah, pay attention to Everett. You'll be fine. Um, but yeah, so 10 to the 80th atoms in the universe. Then he multiplies that by uh, 10 to the 45th, which is the inverse of a Planck length. The Planck length is the smallest distance between any two uh, particles. And so he multiplies that. And then he multiplies it by the number of seconds that the universe has existed. All right, which actually isn't even that big. I think it's like 10 to the 13th power for the number of seconds that the universe has existed according to current theory. Uh, and then he's like, and multiply it by a billion. Like, that's what he did. So he multiplies this all out, and he gets this number 10 to the 150th power. All right, so that's one with 150 zeros after it. And basically what he's figured out is that uh, if you have a probability that is less likely than one in 10 to the 150th power, it's impossible in our universe. Because that number took the likelihood of all possible collisions of all particles in all of the universe for all time multiplied by a billion. And if it can't happen in that scenario, it can't happen. It's not improbable, it's impossible. All right, so that's what he figured out, this mathematician Dembski. And there's this other guy, Sir Fred Hoyle. He just passed away 2001. He's a British dude, right? And he's an astronomer, cosmologist. And he had calculated the probability of cellular life evolving. All right? Not human life, not animal life, cellular life. And he found that the probability of it evolving is 1 in 10 to the 40,000th power. Okay, so 1 in 10 to the 40,000th, compared that to 1 in 10 to the 150th. That's, 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 yeah, it's impossible, is mathematically what, what we would say. I'm a mathematician, so I can say it. It's impossible, right? Not improbable, impossible. And the way that Hoyle talked about this in one of his books... He said that the probability of, of cellular life forming like this through, you know, mechanics and random chance and natural selection or whatever, uh, he said it's the same as if a tornado was to go through a junkyard and then just assemble a Boeing 747, <laughs> right? So it's kind of like an amusing thought of like just, and just like all of the parts come together and, you know, like that's what it would be like. And I would actually say that's more likely than his description, but, but nonetheless, uh, Another author and scientist, Michael Denton, puts it this way. He says, The complexity of the simplest known type of cell is so great that it is impossible to accept that such an object could have been thrown together suddenly by some kind of freakish, vastly improbable event. All right, so that's what we're talking about. And he says, Such an occurrence would be indistinguishable from a miracle. That's what he said. All right, so it turns out... Uh, a material evolutionist believes in miracles better than us Christians do. If, if they're to believe that, that happened through natural processes and had no play behind it. Uh, it's, it's impossible. It would, it would look like a miracle. So within these cells, there's, there's all sorts of evidence of design. They have these molecular machines. There's things like uh, bacterial flagellum, all right? They've got this cool, like, little right thing, and it's, it's like an off-board motor, and what's cool about it is it's got 40 separate components, and if one of them is missing, it doesn't work. It fails to work. So the question is, how would this evolve through small steps? How would this happen through small little increments if any given increment gains no value to that cell? Because there's no benefit, all right? So, so there's all sorts of things like that. There's these cool, like, Kinesin, which are these walking like little 
protein robots, and they actually pull, like, the components of our cells behind them and move them all around on these, like, self-assembling highways called microtubules. Like, definitely check out some of these animations. It's so cool. And it's from these secular biologists that, that are analyzing this. So, so the cell is complex, but within the cell is something that is even cooler, and that's DNA. All right, DNA is a four-letter coding system. All right, four letters, and it's a code. And uh, you actually have 10, sorry again, honey, 10 trillion cells in your body, and each of those cells has six feet of DNA in it. All right, six feet of DNA. My wife said last night, she's like, I'm not even that tall. <laughs> like, right, like, and I've got 10 trillion of these things in me, right? And this is just DNA. And, and one of the interesting comparisons that they've been able to do with DNA is because it's, it's a coding system, uh, is compare it to, like, lines of code in a computer program. I don't know if we have any, like, software engineers in here or anyone that's dabbled in, in writing code before, but it takes uh, a lot of work. It's, it takes a lot of intention and, and, and intelligence. Uh, and in fact, most of the time when you're coding, you're doing something called debugging. Because if you have like a single like comma off or changed a number or a letter, it breaks it bad. And then so most of the time, like you'll write your code and then like you're just going to spend a lot of time trying to figure out, oh, right, why didn't this work right? This broke, right? And if, if we have like teams of software engineers that are coding and it takes them this much effort to write a program, right, what would that look like compared to, to DNA? And uh, the average iPhone app, some of them are smaller, but the average one has 30,000 lines of code, all right, intelligently designed that couldn't happen by random chance. A single cell of syphilis has the DNA code equivalent to a million lines of code, so a million compared to 30,000 lines of code, all right, so that's for syphilis. Uh, a mouse, your regular country country house mouse, right, uh, has 120 million lines of code equivalent in its DNA. And the human being, all right, has 3.3 trillion lines of code in their DNA. All right? So, yeah, those numbers are getting pretty big. And the idea is, like, DNA is complicated. All right? Not only is DNA a code, but it's an error-correcting code, which we are able to program that. We're, we're getting better at that. We can do that. We can write our code so it's error or error detecting. And DNA is also error correcting. And that's even harder to write where the software is able to recognize when there's a problem and then know how to fix it all on its own. And that's, that's actually really hard to program. And software engineers have been figuring out ways to do it. And it's, it's challenging, but they, they've figured it out. Uh, and DNA does that same stuff. It uses the same sorts of systems, the same sorts of components. It even has an operating system, is what scientists have recently discovered. Uh, and, and this is what Bill Gates, you probably heard of him, this is what he said about DNA. He said, DNA is like a computer program, but far, far more advanced than any software ever created. And then these guys, uh, back in the 80s, wrote a book about DNA called The Mysteries of Life's Origin, and this is what they said. Um, An intelligible communication via radio signal from some distant galaxy would be widely hailed as evidence of an intelligent source, right? Like, just like I said with the stone wall, how many stones does it take for you to determine there was an intelligence behind it and a design? So, like, the same thing would happen if we had a radio signal that's just coming at us, you know, with all sorts of data. Eventually, we'd be like, all right, that's not random. 
there's a pattern, there's a signal behind the, the noise. And so this is what they said. Why then doesn't the message sequence on the DNA molecule also constitute prima facie evidence for an intelligent source? After all, DNA information is not just analogous to a message sequence such as Morse code. It is such a messaging sequence. All right, so this stuff is complicated. And, and scientifically, the only way information comes about, the only known source of information is a mind. There has to be an intelligence behind it. The book that you have in your lap, those words didn't randomly assemble because of the paper and the ink. The message that's on there didn't originate from that matter. It originated from a mind. And that's the idea is that these codes, these systems, had to have a mind behind them. And that's, that's the idea. So, let's see. I'm, I'm, once again, I'm going to skip skip this stuff, but you guys can do your own research. I'm serious. Check this stuff out. But even, even atheists are actually coming out and saying, like, this evolution stuff doesn't work. There's this guy, uh, what's his name? Sir Thomas Nagel, uh, just 2012, released a book called Mind and Cosmos, where he just completely, like, he's just stepped off the bandwagon for evolution. He's like, you guys are crazy. This doesn't work. And he's an atheist, so he's not, he doesn't have an ulterior motive or agenda trying to promote God. It's just, just what, the, what he's doing, what he recognized as a result of the science. So let's get back to Jesus, because I've been geeking out on you for a while. And thank you for, for loving me and letting me do that. I appreciate it. I'm a little bit of a nerd. So back to Jesus. In Colossians, it said, all things were created through him and for him. This basically means that he's the boss. Right? He calls the shots. If he made everything, right, he's, he's the one that gets to say what it's for, what its purpose was. And, and that's the idea, is that, that like we should end up recognizing that the designer knows what's best for the product that was designed. Right? And, and the most joy you can experience in your life is finding out what purpose God made you for and then doing it. Because he knows exactly what it takes to fill you with his joy, to make you so happy that you're just so excited about what you're doing because he's the one that made you. So the Bible also said, in him all things hold together. So he's the sustainer of the universe. He's, he's got this under control, right? He's, he's got the whole world in his hands sort of thing. Like, he's got this. It also said that he is the head of the body the church. And this is actually Paul's favorite analogy throughout Scripture. He compares Jesus to the head and the church as to his body. Cumulatively, we represent the body of Christ on earth right now. And the idea is that the head is the one that gives instruction to the body. And in the body, we are all like separate components, eyes, ears, mouth, fingers, right? We all have different strengths and different values and different purposes, but we all together are cumulatively having an effect right, based on the intentions of the head, the, the brain, the mind, right? Jesus is the head. So, so that's what we need to do. We need Jesus, and we need each other if we're going to be an effective body. So it also said that he's the firstborn of the dead. So Jesus, yes, he did raise people from the dead before he died and was rose from the dead, right? Uh, but he's the first one that, that did it for forever, for real, for permanent uh, in the sense that God's power raised him from the dead after the crucifixion. 
and he's the firstborn, meaning he's not the last one in this case, because we actually get to partake in that resurrection. The same power that raised Christ from the dead can dwell in you too if you choose to let him in. And we will at some point experience that. And then my favorite, the Bible calls Jesus preeminent. Preeminent. Let me explain what this word means. It means surpassing all others, very distinguished in some way. Synonyms for this are that Jesus is the greatest, the leading, the foremost, the best, the finest, the chief, outstanding, excellent, distinguished, prominent, eminent, important, top, famous, renowned, celebrated, illustrious, supreme. That is who Jesus is. He's not just our buddy. He's not just our friend, although we do have the privilege of boldly going before his throne of grace. He's made access available to himself in that way. But he is supreme. And I want you to think about this. How is that going to change your prayer life? When you realize you're not just praying to some carpenter, you're praying to the guy who made it all. The guy who has the power and the authority to do something about it. When we put Jesus in the right place in our minds, in our hearts, we realize that he's got this under control and we're willing to go with his plan. Right? So, Let us not diminish Jesus removing titles from him. Just like I wouldn't want to dishonor my best friend who's a hero and withdraw that title that he has. We shouldn't do that to Jesus. The Bible says he's all these things. He is all these things. So so establish that in your heart. Just seek it out. Find the truth and see that he is those things. And just like my best friend died in Iraq to give me and you the freedoms that we have, Jesus also did the same thing. Jesus died that we could be free from our sin and that we would have access to the Father and be able to enjoy his presence forever. So, how do we respond to this? We, we respond by, by trusting in Jesus, trusting what he says. So, a creator is evidenced by creation but that's as far as it goes, right? Creation itself doesn't tell you about Jesus. It just tells you that there was a designer, all right? God the Father displayed his person through Jesus. We learn about the heart of God through Jesus. But the truth of God is learned when we go and speak the truth, the truth that he gave us, the truth that the Holy Spirit leads us into. So the only way that people find out about who God is, is when the gospel is preached, when the good message gets to go forth and people hear that that God loves them and that he's made a way available for them. So in a moment, we will have an opportunity to to give into an offering. If you're visiting, forget about that part. All right, don't feel obligated in any way to to give. Uh, You don't have to worry about that. We just want you to experience who Jesus is. So keep seeking him out. Uh, And And in a moment, we're going to sing some songs. All right, just a couple more songs because he is worthy. He is worth getting excited about. He is supreme. So let's have the worship team come up and we'll pray. Father God, I thank you so much, Lord, that you you love us so much, unconditionally even, that when we were yet your enemies, you died for us. And that you adopt us as your sons and daughters, that you put us in a place where we 
receive the righteousness of you in Jesus, that you see us the same way you saw your son, Jesus. And I thank you that you make this available for free. It's not something that we can earn, but it's something you give freely, not implying that it was not costly. And God, I ask that you would just continue to stir up in our hearts, have us seek out you, have us uh, bring to realization the areas of doubt that we have and the, the areas that we diminish you in our perspective of you. May we magnify you in, in our thoughts that we would recognize the scale of who you really are. And we give you glory today in Jesus' name. Amen.